Hello, Arabella. Hello. Hello. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Sustainer Babble. Where is Uncle Ollie? Uh, I don't know. I don't know either. Well, we'll carry on without him, shall we? We are your friendly little environment podcast about people and the planet and why it's all so confusing, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are. And uh, this week, this is Sustainer Babble thirty-eight, isn't it? Uh, probably thirty-nine. <laughs> Probably thirty-nine. Okay, it's thirty-eight or thirty-nine. Not sure which. And what are we? Who are we going to interview today? Uh, I don't know. Yes, you do. I told you, Tony. 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 That's right. We're interviewing Tony. We have got an interview with the one and only Tony Juniper. Ask Uncle Ollie what we know about Tony Juniper. What do we know about Tony Juniper? Oh, what do we know about Tony? Well. Uh, he's a very experienced campaigner. He knows lots about um, the environment and green stuff. He's been doing it for a long time and he's a very interesting man. So what we did was, about a month ago, we met up with Tony, who has been campaigning on environmental protection and nature and climate change and all of those sort of things for a coffee. And so uh, we interviewed him in a cafe. You weren't there, Arabella. Ol and I interviewed him. And we asked him about the Paris climate talks and about valuing nature and about politics and about whether we are all going to mess up the planet or whether it's going to be okay. And this is our interview with him. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. I'd like to hear it too. Just the disclaimer that uh, we do both work for environmental charities. Arabella doesn't yet, but me and Old do. Um, and these are very much our own views and not the views of anyone else. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Let's get on with the interview. Uh, so, we're here with Tony Juniper. Hello, Tony. Hello, Wally. Very nice to see you. And, and Dave. Hello, Dave. Nice <laughs> to see you too. <laughs> Dave. Uh, Tony, could you, just for the benefit of anyone who doesn't know who you are, could you give us a pricey of uh, your life and work? Ooh, uh, okay. So, um, I would describe myself as an environmentalist, and I guess if I look back over my life, I would say I've been... Yeah, Dave here. Um, Tony has done so much stuff that this bit of the interview took ages and I've mostly cut it out. The summary is he's an extremely experienced campaigner, expert on lots and lots of things, including parrots, has written loads and loads and loads of books um, and was for quite a long time boss of Friends of the Earth and has recently been announced as president of the Wildlife Trust. Basically, if you want to know anything about the environment, you ask Tony. Right, let's get on with it. a great deal over the last eight years. I've put them on the fourth or fifth book at the moment and... Um, I'm finding that a very good way of, of being able to corral ideas that have been gestating over literally three decades and being able to turn that into stuff that hopefully helps to share a bit of the insight and experience that comes from, from quite a long involvement with all of this. So what do you think? You've, you've been at this for a while. Um, what's changed, do you think, in, in, in the environment and in how you think about the natural world and, and the environment in that time? What Would your younger self recognise how you think now, do you think? 
Yes, I, I, I would do. I, I, and, and I think I would be pleasantly surprised by how far we've come. Uh, and so thinking back to those days in the mid-80s, environmentalism um, was, was really a, a niche fringe idea. There were a few people who got it. Some of them were in positions of power. Um, the Prince of Wales, obviously, is one who's been at this for, for 50 years now. And, and he was one of the, the establishment figures who was talking about it. But they were very, very few and far between. The coverage of environmental issues was very thin. Uh, there wasn't really a mainstream acceptance of the, of the problem. And if you look back from then till now, you, you can see a couple of really big shifts that have taken place. So, so one of the biggest and, and most important is the extent to which this has now gone mainstream. And so it's gone mainstream globally, it's gone mainstream nationally, it's gone mainstream as a public discourse, and it's now no longer something that companies do as a matter of greenwashing their brand. A lot of them have now realised this is a strategic long-term threat to business and they're going to have to deal with it. And so all of that has taken a while to occur. And actually it's really in the last 10 years when, when this, this shift has, has happened most quickly to the point now where you can see it unfolding in the finance sector, which is really the engine of the beast, which is driving this global ecological destruction. And if we can get these issues understood amongst the pension funds and insurance companies and banks who, in the end, bankroll all of this, then I think maybe we start to get a little bit further more quickly still. So that's one big thing that's shifted. The other big thing that I think is, is hugely important, which is new, is the amount of information we have. So we, we now no longer have the excuse or the delay that is um, always um, the accompaniment of, of insufficient information. We now know the climate is changing. We now know a mass extinction is underway. We know we have critical pressure on natural resources and soils to fish. We know all of these things have really major implications for humankind. And so that also, I, I think, is, is a major repositioning of, 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 of the issues. This, this brings enormous challenges with it too, of course, because um, as campaigners and environmental advocates, it, it's sometimes relatively easy to, 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 to be sounding the alarm and pressing for action. And it's more messy and more difficult in being able to build consensus across this new group of actors who are now there. So the politicians on the right who get it, the companies who used to be the enemy who get it, the financial organisations who were very much the enemy who were beginning to get it, working in that space is, is, is very challenging compared to having the purity of a message which is about raising the alarm and saying something must be done. But I, I find that a very exciting new piece of territory that we're now working on. And so long as we can keep focus as to, you know, what the end game should look like, I, th I think this could be the period when we actually start to embed some solutions over the next 10 to 20 years. So, um, yes, it is radically different, uh, uh, but, but, but challenging. And, uh, as I say, really, really quite messy in, 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 in how this new group of, uh, of interests can work together to be able to come to some really durable solutions. And, of course, at the same time, you've got a lot of people who've still got their heels firmly dug in on the right side of politics, on the right wing of politics, that is not the correct side of politics um, in particular. There's also some, some left-thinking uh, politics, which doesn't help either. And, uh, you know, they kind of meet in, in their mutual kind of um, uh, view that looking after the environment is either an impediment to the market or an impediment to the progress of humankind. The, 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 that, that narrative prevails across the political spectrum. But it, it's becoming less... Uh, less widespread even though people with power still have it in this country in particular there's people with power who, who still take this view but it's, it's going and history will mark them as a, as a footnote I think in terms of the, the green transformation that will happen 
and then you've got um, some green washers still out there and we know who they are uh, in the fossil fuel sector we like to talk about uh, those yes and, and in some of the commodity companies you know they're in, still in a state of denial and for reasons that are obvious from the point of view of the, the, the executives who are running those organisations and the value base they're working from because what just happened at Paris basically marks the end of them and so they are going to dig their heels in and they are going to fight to the end uh, but again I think uh, another footnote in, in history's um, judgement of how this went in the early half of the 21st century when change did happen these people I think will be um, a minor delay rather than uh, 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 an agent that derails the whole process So in terms of UK politics I started working on all this just at the time when the Climate Change Act was about to become a thing and there was huge cross-party consensus in the UK about the need to act on climate change and so for me it's almost the opposite in the, in the time since yes. uh, there's been arguably a step backwards in UK politics and so do, do you, you do you have more optimism than that do you Yes. How do you see the UK political yes. no, scene playing out? No, well, the, the UK political scene, uh, it, it, it is a subset of um, a set of global megatrends that are going to shape outcomes irrespective of what George Osborne and some backward-looking members of parliament and ministers might think is the right way to, to approach the challenges in front of us. And so what happened, I think, in, in 2008 was the presentation of an opportunity to uh, dismiss a lot of progressive and socially inclusive ideas like environmentalism as something which the right would naturally reject and to do that on the back of a financial crisis. So the financial crisis became the vehicle through which a lot of progressive causes could be put onto the back burner or eliminated from the policy agenda. And so austerity has been the reason why we have to protect hard-working families from renewable energy subsidies, etc., etc., why we have to cut the Environment Agency back to nothing, why we have to dismantle Natural England. All of these things were ideological in nature but were achieved on the back of an economic analysis that was delivered through a, a, a financial meltdown. And so um, you know, the, the, the politics of it are transparent to my eyes and also transparent is the fact that, that it's not durable. Uh, events will overtake this politics one way or the other. And so Paris was uh, a moment last weekend when that gavel came down, the world just changed again and British ministers have been planning completely on the wrong side of that. And so for campaigners at the moment, I think really it's a question of, of joining the dots and revealing to everybody how this particular policy agenda is political and not based upon science or, or rationality and how it's going to do us no good at all because we're going to be left stranded like the oil, coal and gas reserves. This country will be finding itself out of step with where the world is heading. And so the sooner people realise that, the better. And as I say, it's the megatrends that will shape that. Uh, it's kind of obvious what's happening. You know, the idea that we shouldn't act on climate because China's doing nothing, this is transparently now nonsense as this country uh, begins to lag behind big developing uh, nation uh, installers of renewables and with, you know, biggest solar installed capacity in China, same in India, uh, on wind, and it's like, you know, it's going very quickly. Uh, meanwhile, the UK is trying to roll back on these and go for shale gas. I mean, how stupid is that? Yeah, right. And it will become increasingly obvious how stupid it is over the coming years. And so, you know, if, if you're... If you're a rational politician, you, you would hopefully see this and realise that you probably would want to change policy rather than be humiliated down the line, but we'll see how it goes. But one way or the other, it will end. So, uh, 
you sound like you're pretty positive about what happened in Paris. Uh, and we talked about this uh, when I just got back from Paris uh, and I was very tired and I wasn't making any sense and I didn't really understand what had gone on. And there's been a, a, a wide range of views. Yes. Certainly some people have been saying, yeah. you know, this is actually a very bad deal for the world's yeah. poor. Yeah. The rich countries aren't stepping up. Yeah. Other people are saying it is a hugely... A huge step forward. How do you see it then? Yeah, well, I see it as a huge step forward, and uh, I, I, I say that from the perspective of somebody who was lobbying for the original treaty back in Rio in '92, and in the years running up to that, uh, working with Friends of the Earth International, and have been following that process ever since, and was at various of the key moments that have shaped the journey, including in Kyoto in '97. I was in Copenhagen in 2009, various meetings in between then and now, and I went to Paris uh, really to, 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 to judge where this had got to. And I, I think it, it, it is a major step. And they're, they're broadly speaking, and irrespective of the detail in terms of you know, the, the questions about finance and, and who's got responsibility for what, there were three outcomes from Paris. Number one was we get a clear and strong signal that the world is now going to decarbonise. Option number two was we get an equivocal signal saying we might do it later on if we can be asked to do it. Signal number three would have been, we're not bothered, we don't care. Um, Copenhagen actually was as far as we're going to get and we're going to carry on burning coal and stick with fossil fuels and deforestation. So the fact that we got option one, I think, marks a triumph. And it's very important to see what is possible to get out of those negotiations in judging how successful it was or not. When you have 196 countries sitting around the table trying to agree one thing, they start from very different places. And so the 1.5 degree thing, for example... From the point of view of the Maldives, this is um, an existential question. If we have one and a half degrees, we may exist as a country. If we have two, we're probably gone. If you speak to the Russians, two degrees is probably quite good for opening up wheat farming in Siberia. Same thing for the Canadians, and they sit around the table with that in mind, looking at their long-term interests. Then you've got the historic polluters who think they're going to be taken to task for the damage being caused by emissions that were during the 20th century and even the 19th century. Then you've got the big emerging economies who want to burn lots of fossil fuels in order to be able to uh, grow their economies and end poverty. And then you've got the very poor countries who are the victims of climate change. You don't have much fossil resources. Many of their people living in extreme poverty. And their interests are totally different, again, even from other poor countries like India and China, poor in inverted commas. So when you start putting those groupings together, never mind the nuances between 196 of them, you finish up with a train wreck in diplomatic terms, in, in, in being able to get from A to B and translating the science that we have about degrees centigrade, carbon budgets, emissions pathways, parts per million, never mind turning that into technology and land use choices. This is really, really bloody hard. And I think the breakthrough that, that came in the run-up to Paris was the way in which a lot of the tension and difficulty was removed by giving countries the responsibility to come to the table with their own emissions reductions. I think this changed everything because having sat through previous negotiations where everybody is trying to agree everybody else's target, it, it, it is by definition impossible uh, for the reasons I just said in terms of the difference between Russia and the Maldives for, for instance. So that's, that's quite interesting because we've in the past uh, talked about these um, intended nationally determined contributions, yeah. the INDCs. Yes. And we gave them a bit of a hard time, to be honest, because it's the idea that With you don't, you don't start point. from what's yeah. necessary, you no, start right. from what you're prepared to do. Well, but you're saying that you'd actually turn it on its head. It's the yes. only diplomatic solution. It's, it, it, it really is. It's, it, 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 it is a question of what's necessary, but more importantly, it's a question of what's possible. And as I say, if you put those countries together with their different interests, and they do have different interests, our interests are different to Botswana, 
and you know uh, Namibia's interests are different to uh, Indonesia. That, that is just a fact of life. And the way the world works is through nation states. And, and most of how the world works is through nation states deciding things in their own country. Sometimes there's some democracy, sometimes there's civil society, sometimes there's some transparency through an independent media and everything else. A bit of how the world works is also top-down through you know, global agreements, uh, or not so much top-down, but, but through collective agreement. And those are delivered sometimes top-down and sometimes bottom-up. And if, if you look at that piece, that global piece, and then, and then relate that back to the climate science, um, I think, you know, if, if you look at what just happened compared to what people were trying to do before, you, 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 you quickly realise that that shift to devolving a lot of this to countries made, made a very significant difference. Now, we all know it's not enough, and we all know that what they've collectively committed to, even if they implement it, is two and a half to three degrees very likely of warming right there. So that's, that's not good. However, if you look at what uh, came from Paris in terms of the signal which is the most important thing. The governments of the world said, we are now serious about going low carbon, and they've said they want to do one and a half degrees. Okay, so, you know, we, we, we have doubts about some countries' ability, some other countries' willingness, and we certainly have doubts about the targets, but the fact that a five-year review has been put in, I think now is the opportunity that we've all got to make a very, very important point, and the very, very important point is that going down this decarbonisation route is not a disaster for the economy, it's not a disaster for poverty reduction, it's not a disaster for access to electricity, it's not a disaster for competitiveness. And this five-year rolling cycle, I think now, is the opportunity for countries to gain confidence that what they've signed up to is actually not only doable, it's actually quite easy, and it's really much better than what they were doing before. And I think once that line of thinking starts to get embedded, then I think we accelerate in the 2020s and 2030s and we actually do have a chance of sorting this out uh, but it, it, it is in the end about the reluctance of countries to go on the journey being broken and that reluctance has, has, has been it's been principally founded on, on economic and poverty questions and also competitiveness questions so why should I do anything if you're not doing it is the kind of you know north-south dialogue I think if we get to the point in the next half decade and decade where everyone says because they found out for themselves that going to renewables, slowing down deforestation, actually is really good, and not just from the point of view of global climate. It's good for our economy, it's good for our technology base, it's good for health because the air pollution has gone down, it's good for stopping flooding because the deforestation is under control, it's good for water security because the aquifers are being replenished because the forest is still there, and people start to put two and two together. And I think one of the things about the climate discussion which has been most debilitating looking back on it has been the argument about the hypothetical future. And so, you know, the hypothetical future could be, we could be renewable. Other people say, well, no, we can't. It's not possible. Technologically, it doesn't work and it's too expensive. Um, well, we could be heading towards a climate disaster. Well, the science isn't proven. This extreme weather could be a natural kind of variation. On both counts, we're now into a world where we can see that both of those things um, are true. We can go renewable because people are doing it, and we do know that the science is right because we're seeing unprecedented heat waves, storms, droughts, and everything else. And these two things together, I think, propel the discussion into a new place. So, Tony, uh, I want to talk about putting a price on nature, or valuing nature. Uh, you've written a lot about this. You've been one of the people who has advocated thinking differently about the value of nature to the economy. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? And maybe uh, tell us what bits of it, how far you're prepared to go with that agenda? Yes, indeed. So, so my, my, my thinking on this um, emerged from many years of trying to work out what the main problem is. 
So, so one one of the things I, I think we can say that is um, uh, you know a big shift is the amount of information we now have. We we know what's happening to the climate. We know what's happening to biodiversity. We know what's happening to re- the resource base. And yet we continue as we have before. And the reason we continue as we have before is not because we want to destroy nature, broadly speaking. We continue because we think it's a rational economic choice. That's basically what it comes down to. And so building new runways, liquidating a natural forest, plundering a fishery, it's all done in the name of economic growth. And the environmental downside is generally presented as the price of progress. That, that, that's how the narrative goes. That's, that's the Im- embedded message. In, in the decisions we take which are environmentally destructive and so it struck me that one of the arguments that the environmentalists need to win over, over the coming years is the economic argument so we can continue to say it's immoral to trash the climate and to destroy forests and it is but if we don't win the economic argument at the same time as the moral one then I think we probably finish up losing overall and so it struck me that we needed to craft some new narratives around the economic value of nature and through the work I was doing with with um, Cambridge and with Prince of Wales and various other bits and pieces, I was becoming aware of this very rich body of material that was beginning to put values against ecosystems and this idea of ecosystem services. And so it struck me that this would be a good thing to convey into the environmental debate, not as a technical discussion, but one really about about a narrative backed by stories, which could paint a different picture about the rationality of current economic thinking and to show that actually it's not rational and what's in fact happening is that we're not creating growth, we're creating contraction by destroying assets that are delivering massive value for the economy. And so we're removing bits of the economy, pollinators, soil fertility, aquifers, air quality, um, carbon capture ability of forests and peat bogs and everything else, and we're doing it and counting it as growth without counting the downside. And so it struck me that if we can insert into this economic discussion something about broader value rather than financial value now and to show whether we're actually growing or shrinking would be an important contribution and I think it has been and the distinction that I constantly make in in having conversations with people uh, on the green side of the argument who see this as a danger is to make this very clear distinction between valuation and pricing because a lot of people see the economic discussion around nature as being a a route to privatisation of the natural world and through uh, this kind of um, uh, financial metrics, you, you basically hand control of these assets to, to economic interests. There is some danger of that under some circumstances, but the thing I would point to is the power of using a valuation argument in making a policy point. So, for example, that discussion around the banning of neonicotinoid pesticides in the UK uh, two years ago I think that was a very different discussion as a result of having some numbers around the value of bumblebees to the economy than had it been simply bumblebees are very interesting and very beautiful and they should be protected and they're getting very rare. It propelled it into a different bit of the newspaper, it propelled it into a different bit of the media debate and it certainly put it into a different position in politics because we were able to say, you know, these neonicotinoids are not only destroying our butterfly populations and leading to the decline of many insects that are also suffering from habitat loss, it's actually imperiling a key economic sector, agriculture. And so there are arguments like that and you can make them in water, you can make them in relation to carbon, certainly in relation to fisheries and you don't have to resort to putting natural assets into the market you can change the policy approach as a result of having made a different argument in a in a space which whether we like it or not is dominated by economic arguments you know that that is the way that the, the, the world works 
And so we could say the environment is more important than the economy, and we've been doing that for 30 years, and we've got a certain distance. Uh, or, you know, that there should be a balance between ecology and economy. Uh, and neither of those are enough. They're not going to work, in my opinion. And so I think we do need to propel this discussion around ecology into the economic space and actually to point out that, contrary to what many economists seem to think, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature, not the other way around. And if you're going to have a sound economy into the future, whether it's growing or not, and, you know, you know the whole, whole other set of issues there around how you measure that... If you don't have healthy nature, you don't have an economy. And, and so if, if, we, if we can embed that broad point into how policies are, going for, policies are made going, going forward, then I think we gain something. And it, there are downsides potentially with this in terms of you know, it being captured as a narrative by people who've got different motivations. But I think putting ourselves outside the economic argument is a far, far bigger danger. So long as we carry on um, responding to people advocating growth with, well, you know, the environment's very beautiful, I'm afraid we're not going to get where we need to get to. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite um, confident on my ground on this one, having thought about it a lot and ha- having seen some of the downsides and heard some of the arguments about the downsides. I, I think we can deal with them. So I guess one of the downsides uh, I've heard is that what happens when bits of nature, to use a very crude term, can't be demonstrated to have a particularly high economic value but are obviously intrinsically valuable... Yeah. Um, what happens then? Is yeah. that effectively selling those, opening those up to be to be destroyed on the grounds they're no. not valuable? No, we, 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 we say they're very important, they're very beautiful, they're intrinsically worth keeping and we shouldn't damage it. So we still make that argument. Uh, but what's going on uh, in this country and across the world right now is that we've got a few protected areas where the intrinsic value is, is, is nominally uh, safeguarded by some lines on maps. Very often it doesn't work, but we've, that's as far as we got with the intrinsic argument. Nature's very beautiful in this place. We'll put a fence around it and we'll call it a nature reserve. Everything else is part of the economy. And that, 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 that's where we're losing. And so, you know, it, it does come down, you put your finger on it, it comes down to our ability as conservationists and environmentalists to be able to make two arguments at once, or three arguments at once, or even four. And the four arguments are, it's intrinsically of enormous value in its own right, therefore don't destroy it. Argument number two, there's enormous spiritual fulfilment people get from engagement with nature. We should keep it for that. Argument number three, it's very beautiful and it has enormous aesthetic uh, contributions to human well-being. We should keep it for that. Argument number four, when all of those three have demonstrated the limitations, which they have done, we then add the economic argument. And this is very important to not replace those previous three with the economic argument. We add the economic argument. And this is where there is some debate amongst conservationists. Can you simultaneously present an idea through several frames at once? Uh, And some people say, no, you can't. You can only do it one way at a time. I think we can do it through more than one way at a time, especially when more than one organisation is making the argument. And this is the other thing, actually, which I think flows out of this. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about this niche world of environmentalism in the 80s. There's now many, many actors involved. And even in the NGO world, many, many more actors. And maybe we need to contemplate how we're going to embrace many kinds of environmentalism in that new mainstreaming of the discussion. The last thing we should do, um, given our little resources are available to our work, is to argue with each other um, about who's right and who's wrong, because down that road lies disaster. 
So I guess the economic economic argument is uh, essential if the decision makers are predominantly economists, yes. um, which it seems to me like most of them are, or you know, a high proportion are. So then, wouldn't the whole thing be a hell of a lot easier if we got a few more ecologists into the corridors of power? And if you think that's right, how do we do that? <laughs> yes, um, so this, this is a very good point, a very good question. Um, well, w- one thing we need to do is, is to change the training that the economists are getting. Uh, because they, 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 they have no understanding of, of, of the contribution of the natural world to human well-being, including in a, in a straightforward economic sense. They just do not get it. And so that needs to be fixed. And you can do that through economics departments or universities, business schools and all these places where these people get trained up with their neoliberal free market economics and then shoved off to run a finance ministry and all the disasters that follow are visible for everyone to see. So we've got to change their training. The other thing is to get ecologists at the table, not just in economics, but everywhere else, in infrastructure planning, agriculture, at an early stage when policies are being formed. What generally happens is, is that you have a policy agenda that, that is um, presented and or a decision for a piece of infrastructure whatever, and then it kind of goes forward to consultation, and then the ecologists come in and try and make it less bad. What we need to do is have the ecologists co-designing the future, whether it's policy or pieces of engineering at the beginning. Because if we're going to be able to reflect the full value of nature in how we design our world in the decades ahead and build genuine green infrastructure, the ecologists have got to be there at the start. Uh, and and they, they historically haven't been. But when they are, you get transformative outcomes in terms of how you can build multiple values for society through a decision that otherwise would have been pursuing one value. And so, um, you know, water catchments is a good example I've been working on a little bit over recent years where you've got some light bulbs going off in senior levels in water companies who've been, you know, building a lot of engineering and uh, water treatment works to take pesticides out and to remove sediment before public supply uh, of the water. When they've had ecologists looking at the future of their business, they've said, actually, this is the most expensive and most stupid thing to do. What we should do is spend far less money managing the catchment. And if we manage the catchment to produce pure water... We also get a massive carbon capture benefit. We reduce flooding. We make this into a tourism asset for the local area. And we conserve rare birds, insects and plants. And that is a result of having understood the economic value of that catchment presented by an ecologist into a business decision. And so much more of that is needed. But how you get those people to the table is is a good question. Uh, Enlightened chief executives would help. When it comes to policy, you know, making the argument that these things need to be part of the overall valuation in terms of value for money um, is really quite, quite, quite a, a good argument to make too. Actually, in that last book I did, what, is, what Nature Does for Britain, the kind of punchline for that is that we're spending our money in a stupid way in this country. We're, we're spending agricultural subsidies in ways that are making flood defences and water quality and piping pure water to people, making that more expensive. And so we're basically spending taxes to make bills higher. And, you know, that, that is daft. But if you had an ecologist designing the way in which that government department was looking at the crossovers between water supply, flood prevention and soil quality, it would be blindingly obvious. But it isn't. It's bureaucrats and economists working in silos who don't see the connections uh, between these ecological system level uh, uh, opportunities. And so... It's essential. Uh, how you do it is more complicated. But, um, you know, I, I think it is all a part of enlightenment in the end and understanding that there is actually something there that we haven't really fully understood and then trying to build it in. And the other thing I would say actually on that is do not underestimate people's ability to remain utterly ignorant, even with the best information. And it, it, it is about having just a broad understanding. It's kind of what this <laughs> podcast is all about, to be honest. <laughs>
So uh, you strike me as an optimistic sort of chap, and yes. probably a degree of optimism is necessary. It is. How do you remain optimistic and what have your darkest moments been and have you sort of dragged yourself out of that and, and something we, we like to ask is for the next generation we, we have you know, younger listeners how, how do you inspire them that actually the world's going to be alright and yourself yes I, I suppose on the journey over the years I, I kind of um, I became convinced that, that, that pessimism um, is the shortest way to, to ending one's career in this particular line of work because if you can't see some sense of possibility and hope on questions like climate change and, and global biodiversity depletion, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. And, you know, I, I look around the, the, the world of environmentalists and, you know, I, I, I increasingly see a role for pragmatic optimists and perhaps lesser, as time goes on, for what you might call the cynical idealists. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting challenge for us all because, you know, we, 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 th- there's a spectrum there. I guess it's like, you know, any, any kind of spectrum of kind of psychological uh, 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 measurement. And, you know, we're, we're all on it. And we probably change during the course of a single day. You know, part of the day I will be um, a cynical pessimist. And I try to keep the balance more in the, in the, in the pragmatic optimist area. And, and it is for that reason of, of, of being able to continue to do it. Because I, I think I'd get so fed up and depressed with myself if I kept saying there's nothing that can be done. It's all a complete disaster. Nobody's to be trusted. Everybody who's not us is evil. And everything that's being said we can't believe because it's based upon some hidden agenda. Doing that too much, I think, leaves you kind of debilitated. And uh, you you probably not only lose your own energy, uh, but also you you don't provide energy to anybody else. And actually, this is one thing I've learned about um, trying to offer some leadership on on this over the years. And, and, you know, I, I think it is about providing people with a sense of possibility and some belief that you can change things. And you can change things uh, under these difficult circumstances better, I would argue, if you're optimistic about the prospects of doing it. And and these things are huge, and they are complicated, and they are deep, and they've got enormous momentum behind them. And so talking down our opportunity to change things, I think, actually, is is, is a big mistake, because the the odds are already stacked heavily against us. And so if we don't believe we're going to win, who the bloody hell will believe we're going to win? When we, uh, we asked Chris Packham this question, yeah. and, and he pointed also to his fundamental belief that he was right. Yes. So he said, actually, underneath it all, I believe that I'm right. Yes. And I believe that facts and rationality yeah, exactly. will win the day. And did, do you share that? Yes, I do. And uh, I, I, I believe that you know, it's, it's important to have confidence about, about the, um, the strength of one's arguments, but also be willing to listen to everybody else and, and to, to understand their point of view. And, and one of the things I would say I've learned since leaving Friends of the Earth and, and engaging with the private sector quite a lot is to realise that most of them are actually human beings and nearly all of them are quite nice and most of them have a good reason why they're doing what they're doing even though that reason in our eyes might be a bit short-sighted or not very good but being constructive human beings means that you can actually have a conversation with them and so being right is vital but being willing to listen to other people who don't necessarily believe you're right immediately and going on a journey with them is also a very big bit of this and I think actually... um, there is a danger in putting too much of one's own self-confidence out there because, you know, that can lead people to have the kind of reaction that we would have to some of the economists who think they're right. We, we, you know, the, the walls go up, the battle lines are drawn and, the, and the, the conflict begins. And in a conflict, you know, both sides are capable of digging trenches and building new weapons. And that's what happens in a war. And you may not necessarily get what you need you finish up with a stalemate a trench warfare 
and uh, that sometimes can come from too much confidence in one's own personal view even though it may be well founded and there's good data and everything else so I think that willingness to negotiate with people and to listen to their point of view is actually quite key to, 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 to how we get movement on all of these things and I, I suppose then it comes down to optimism in, in humans really I mean, you know everyone is in the end more or less kind of self-interested uh, but most people also have, have a wider view most people want to be seen to be doing the right thing most people want the esteem of their peers most people would like to be um, remembered well by history even if it's their own family never mind you know what, what might be written in a book and so, you know, there are good motivations there to build on, and I think we need to, we need to work with those. And, uh, you know, as, as I say, optimism is a good way of, of bringing people into the conversation, telling them they're wrong and nothing can be done. You don't really have much to discuss after that. My, uh, my six-year-old niece, uh, Arabella, helps us out on this show, and she reads out some of the, uh, the more egregious uh, eco-guff that we find on the internet and stuff. Um, in in a, a tone of optimism, mm. what do you think the world's going to look like when she's grown up? We, we sometimes talk about the Hinkley yeah. Point deal, which is going to yeah. come to fruition in 2061. So in 2061, what's what's the UK and the world going to look like? And well, the we history books, well, the history books will have a very vivid account of how Hinkley C was never built because it was a <laughs> stupid idea. Um, but apart from that, there will be. Um, there will be a period of, uh, of ecological restoration going on by then, I think. I, th- I think the penny is beginning to drop in enough important places now that by the time we, we get to the middle part of this century, I'm, 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 I'm confident that we, we will have turned the corner and we will be back into a, a process of, of not trying to stop the destruction but to rebuild much of what we've lost. And I think the next 20 years really is, is going to be the period of hanging on to as much as we can whilst we're winning this argument and building that consensus. So the last bits of rainforest, when people say well, there's only 2% left, well, from 2% you can rebuild 80% of what was there before, so long as we've got the, 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 the means to do it. And so as long as we can hang on to the building blocks, we can rebuild a lot of, a lot of what, we've, what we've damaged. This is, um, you know, that, that's the optimist in me speaking about this. Um, and I, 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 I think that's easier to see, actually, than the, um, the pessimistic side. You know, what we could have is continuing decline, but are people really going to allow that in a world of total transparency where we can now see all the information and we can broadly know, uh, you know, what's going on? And that's only going to grow in, in, the, in the decades ahead. And I think for people now um, in, their, in their teens and 20s and younger, they're not really going to accept that. And so I think, I think it is a transition period we've entered. And, you know, the people who are going to be running major corporations in the 2030s, they're coming out of university now, and the education they had as children on all of this was radically different to the people who are in those jobs at the moment. So I, I, I think we will see a major shift, and it will be one, you know, that, that is um, in part about the deployment of technology. It's going to be in part about changed expectations and lifestyles and what people think is a good life. It's going to be about um, people having a different philosophical relationship with the earth and you know no longer seeing it as a as a dustbin and a source of endless resources that we burn up without any thought for tomorrow there'll be change at that level of of kind of philosophy too and i think you can see all of these pieces they're all there already and so um i would think for for, you know for your niece in the 2060s she can look forward to a bright future so long as the bits of it that are already here can be nurtured and can be made strong and that's what's happening and i think you know going back to paris there's a big bit of that there right there Great. Well, thank you very, very much, Tony. My pleasure. Lovely to see you, guys. Yeah. And, um, 
and uh, yeah, fingers crossed that everything optimistic yes. uh, you predicted does. Yes, happen. happy 2016. I think this is going to be a, a year when we see some, some more good things. Actually, looking back on this year, it's not been bad. We've got the SDGs, a new climate deal, various bits and pieces going on in countries that gives us a sense that things are on the move. What's the, what's the one thing you'd like to see in 2016? How do, how do we know that 2016 has been another good year, do you think? I finished my new book about rainforests on time. (laughs) Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Can you pull Uncle Ollie's hair? I want to see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Oi! That's great. I should have you around to do that more often. What else can you... Can you tickle Uncle Ollie? Is that possible? (laughs) What's going on now? (laughs) Tickling my chin like a cat. <laughs> Thank you, as always, to Dickie Moore for the music. Thank you very much to Tony for giving up his time. Uh, sorry for any background noise, but we think it sounded all right. Don't you think, Carabella? Yeah. Yeah, it sounded all right. Yeah. Um, and uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with Sustainable 39. Um oh. Yeah, well, that's all right. And um, we would like to wish you all a very happy new year. Say happy new year to everyone, Arabella. Happy new year. Happy new year, everyone. Have a very babbly new year and we shall be back in a few weeks' time. You can get in touch with the show by... Now, what ways do we do this? You can follow us on Twitter at The Babble Wagon. You can drop us an email at uh, hello at sustainababble.fish or you can find us on Facebook. Just find Sustainababble. And if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give us a little review, please do so. Tell everyone to give us a little review, Arabella. Give us a little review. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Excellent news. So, if you could ask Uncle Ollie to say goodbye as well. Say bye-bye. Oh, bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.